Okay, so uh, welcome to the show to uh, my guest here, Michelle Perrin of Cahoots. Thank you so much for being a guest on Captain Hunter's podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad. Uh, just to fill the audience in, we had some issues here. I was on the phone for four hours with our lovely government officials here and still didn't get anywhere. So, uh, But uh, well, we're going to press on, and I want to thank Ms. Uh, Perrin for being so patient with me. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, things happen and life happens and all that kind of stuff. So before we dig into the to the episode here, if you would just uh, kind of tell the audience just a little bit about yourself. Please. Mm -hmm. So um, I have a so my educational background, I have a master's in criminology and also just earned my master's in social work. So I have that blend of mental health and public safety. Um, I might. Uh, professional background, I've been in public safety most of my adult life and then went into mental health. Um, I started with CAHOOTS in 2016 as an EMT, and then I cross-trained into the role of EMT and crisis worker. So I've, even though I've been off in school, I've been going back and doing relief for them, and I'm, I'm returning um, this month, actually, and hope to continue working with them also in a relief capacity, although my main job will be in social work at the VA. Okay, very good. Uh, so you've, you've had a passion for, for helping people, uh, social work, is that is that accurate to say? Yeah, absolutely. So I've always been interested in uh, mental health and the, the criminal justice system and kind of how they overlap um, and how they can work together and how they also, you know, kind of work against each other. But always had a passion for, for helping people and just trying to bridge gaps so that everybody is getting the help that they actually need and solutions that are actually going to make a difference. Yeah, very good. I'm actually considering going back to school for that as well. I don't know if I want to do the LPC thing, or if I want to do the social work thing. Um, I'm not exactly sure what I want to do, but I do have the same type of passion that you do as far as mental health. Um, I think that it's, I, I think it's very, very interesting how the, how they do interlap. And, um, and uh, you know, just the, the amount of people who are just dealing with the criminal justice system who are suffering from these different diseases. Uh, and also just the whole, people's upbringing and how that really translates mm -hmm. to, to how they turn out in life. And that's really, really just fascinating to me. And I think if we can correct so many different issues uh, along the way, as far as people's upbringing, uh, mm -hmm. maybe we can, can stem the tide of people being incarcerated and all that kind of stuff, you know? So really, really Absolutely. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So congratulations. So you just got it. Is that right? I did. Yeah, newly uh, minted social worker from Arizona State. <laughs> very good. Now, do they? Uh, and you're in you're in Arizona, is that correct? I am currently in Arizona. Yes, um, and heading okay. back to Oregon, um, end of the month. Oh, so you you didn't do it online? You actually went down there. Is that? Is that right? Yeah, I did. I actually I transitioned down here. Um, my husband's from here. Um, and was working here. And so I came down to, to finish my degree. And so it was in person for the first semester and a half. And, you know, we're the, we're the COVID class. So then we, we did get to go online. <laughs> so we got to do a little bit of both, but no, I did in-person classes and um, it was, it was an incredible experience to, to learn, especially about the social determinants of health and how, um, you know, adverse childhood experiences and things like that play a role you know, and where do we, where do we jump in to try to make the biggest difference? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you think about the, the quote, you know, about how it's easier to, to help children, you know, than it is to fix broken men. I can't remember the exact quote, but it's definitely easier to, to try to guide children than it is to try to fix it once, once it's pretty deeply ingrained. 
Well, I, I certainly believe that. I, I definitely believe that. Um, there are no schools in Oregon, or you just want to be closer to your husband? <laughs> um, so I got my. I did want to be closer to my. He wanted to be closer to me as well. He was finishing out, so he actually just retired yesterday, twenty-one years on the Phoenix Police Department. Okay. Um, so he, yeah, was interested in having me closer to him as well. And my undergraduate degree is from Arizona, so I've had you know a lot of um, split between Oregon and Arizona. Um, since I got out of the service when I was pretty young, so it it made sense. I wanted to go back to my alma mater. Have always have always loved it. So, okay, very good. Well, congratulations to him. Uh, yeah. Maybe he can come on the show one day. We can we can uh, hear hear some stories here. Oh yeah, he's got stories. Yeah. <laughs> That's really the reason why I ended up going back and getting my degree when I already had a master's and was working kind of that bridge was for Medicaid. They didn't consider my master's in criminology a behavioral health. They would go back and forth and they couldn't decide what it really was. And so to bill for services, um, there was always a question about whether or not it was like a billable degree. And so finally I was like, okay, I'm getting tired of having this conversation over and over again. I'm just going to go back and get my MSW and then you guys won't have a problem with it. <laughs> so really that was the main reason. Cause I didn't want to go back either. I'm like, I have lived experience and academics to back it up. Like, why do I need to have another you know, more letters behind my name just to be legit. But the system was like, you need to, and I'm like, fine. Well, that that's, ex that's exactly where I'm at. So I'm thinking, you know, here, I, I'm assuming it's the same in Arizona or Oregon, but mm -hmm. here in Connecticut, you have to, you have to have a degree in psychology in order to get your LPC. Yeah. Yeah. To get you to get your LPC. So I talked to to uh, one of the local colleges here and I had to send them my transcripts and they'll they'll iron out a program for me. Um, mm -hmm. based on my transcripts and all that. So I, I could take three, four, or five classes, whatever. But mm -hmm. sitting in the classroom for 18, 18 yeah. months or whatever is not what I want to yeah. do. But, you know, three, four classes, whatever, I can, I can do that. Um, but I just want to make sure that I'm on the right pack. And, and just like you, I'm going to be billable, right? So yeah. I have, like you, I have lived experiences. Not, I mean, I was one of the um, uh, crisis intervention officers. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I have two degrees in psychology. So I'm like, what more do I need to? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, but, but, but again, I don't want to keep having this argument with people. So I'm like, you know, yeah. let me just go back and just do it. So, so that's where I'm at. Do I do the LPC thing or do I do the, the MSW thing? So, you know, I don't know yeah. how, much, how, how many more letters do I need? You know? So I, you know, I don't know. depends on what you want to do with it. I, and I it guess. depends on, you know, you seem to be the kind of person who really has a love of learning. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for me, if it wasn't the expense, yeah. <laughs> oh, I would be in classes all the time. Like yeah. I, the good, the cool thing about being, you know, a social worker is the different therapeutic modalities and the different kind of trauma trainings, and especially working with the VA. I mean, I noticed is that a Navy SEAL behind you? Is that what I'm seeing back there? Oh no, it's uh, the FBI. 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 Uh, okay, I was yeah. like, oh. Um, no, I wasn't a SEAL. No, I, I wish, but uh, <laughs> oh, I meant the Navy. The Navy logo, I should say. Oh, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but working with veterans, there's a lot of um, kind of a mix between that medical and mental health as well. And so there's trainings that the VA will pay for that I can continue to learn and the love of learning. But yeah, it was really the cost, or I'd keep going. Oh, this is fascinating. I'm going to go take this class, and I'm going to go take this class. <laughs> ASU has one of the best social work programs in the nation. Um, it's it's excellent. It was an incredible program. And I, you know, coming in with, you know, being a little bit older and having some lived experience, I'm like, I don't want to sit here and have you tell me a bunch of theoretical stuff that doesn't work on the street. I don't want to hear it. Like, I'm not going to buy it. I'm just not. And so there wasn't anything in the classes. There wasn't anything in what we were learning that didn't advance what I knew. And that I was like, cool. I didn't feel like I was 
regressing. So they have a completely online program. Um, so if that's something that you're interested in, you can take, you know, the classes as you go along and that would be that would be great. I just got to make sure that it's going to put me on the path to be certified in Connecticut because I'm not. Mm -hmm. you know, you know, like, yeah. That's the, that's the that's the only question that I would have. Yeah. So it's I mean it's just like it's a um, whatever the Social Work Association CSWE I think um, it's a CSWE certified school. So it's going to be whenever you want to get you know some sort of certification through your your state or whatever, it's going to be a school that they are going to check off as as a legit MSW. Okay. So it'll transfer. Like I, I'm going back to Oregon. Another one of my classmates was going back to Michigan. One just went back to Boston. Um, okay. So yeah, it, it's it's a base foundation that you're not going. It's not one of those fly by nights that they're going to be like, sorry, it's not certified. It's a certified school. Okay. And you still have to do hours though, right? As far as uh, when you get back to Oregon to to be to be licensed or is it yeah. So the licensure program, like that's a super. That's going to be state by state. Um, yeah. So once I get back to Oregon, um, I need I will take my LMSW, my licensed Masters of Social Work um, test, which I'm studying for now. So I'll get that, take that, I'll get licensed, um, and then eventually you get the supervision hours and the um, direct practice hours, so that you can test for your licensed clinical social worker, your LCSW, which means that you can work um, independently. And so that works a little bit differently in each state. Like Oregon actually has a mid-grade like um, certification as well. Um, and a lot of other states don't. They just have the LMSW and then the LCSW. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's that's all the the that's what I'm looking into now is to figure mm -hmm. all figure all that out, how much time and how that's <laughs> gonna be. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I'm actually I was actually corresponding with the lady from um Central Connecticut State University yesterday. So, mm -hmm. so we'll see. Yeah. Anyway. Good luck with any, that. Yeah. Well, thanks. <laughs> um, so, so you're part of uh, the Cahoots uh, program. Um, if you could just tell us what that is uh, and uh, how effective it is and all that kind of stuff, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. So Cahoots, which stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek name that came from the beginnings when um, we are a division of Whitebird Clinic, which has actually been around since the 60s. Um, and Oregon, you know, is definitely very counterculture, um, very um, anti-establishment. And so Whitebird Clinic created a um, space, a medical clinic, a, a social clinic, a place for, you know, kind of that counterculture to be able to get support um, when they didn't want to get it from the normal agencies, whether that was the hospital system, whether it was the criminal justice system. Um, so Whitebird Clinic was doing a mobile crisis at the time, like they had created because they realized they were already doing a phone-in crisis and a walk-in crisis. And they realized, you know, a lot of these situations, people are not able to get to us, get to the crisis workers. And so we're going to go out to them. Um, and because of funding, they weren't able to stay. It was they were volunteers. Everyone was volunteers. Um, because of funding, they weren't able to stay in business. And one of the original members of Whitebird was asked by the county to kind of come together when they were designing this long-range plan for what um, public safety, mental health, 
um, was going to look like. And so he, you know, around the kitchen table with a bunch of the other other people from Whiteboard was like, hey, if we were to just dream big, what would this look like? And they were like, wouldn't it be cool if we were embedded into that first responder system so that we could go take care of calls as they come in? Like we are, we're getting things after the fact. Like what would it look like if we were alongside law enforcement alongside, you know, the establishment. And they're like, yeah, you know, I doubt it'll ever happen, but that would be cool. So they actually wrote it into this long-term plan that got put into a binder as a lot of government things do <laughs> put up on a shelf. And one day somebody pulled that off the shelf and was like, wow, this is really kind of an interesting idea to have this, you know, have this mobile crisis unit that works with the police department. Um, let's see what that looks like. And so at the time, you know, everyone was like, um, so you're going to be in cahoots with the police. And, you know, on the police side, they were like, you're going to be in cahoots with a bunch of hippies. How is this going to work? And of course, both sides were like, I don't know, but let's see what that looks like. And so that's where kind of the name came about. And so cahoots is a as a division started in 1989. Um, of course, it was very limited hours, very limited scope, while everyone kind of felt out what was this going to look like to be able to send unarmed mental health professionals on these calls that had typically been um, handled by law enforcement because when so many other, you know, deinstitutionalization and all of that, like had been stripped, you know, all of the, those kind of things um, had been stripped from, you know, the, the social fabric, the police department was the only thing left that you knew you could call them and they were going to have to come out and deal with it. Like they couldn't, you know, just say, never mind, we're not coming. So um, that kind of started that way. And over time, they realized, you know, there was a lot of training. There was a lot of um, kind of, you know, circling each other, trying to decide how is this going to work? What are the roles? Like, you know, all of that. But over time, they realized, everybody kind of realized, wow, you know, when we separate out, separate out the roles and the professionals that do these specific things that have these specific trainings, this actually works really well. You know, the police were happy to, you know, be allowed to do law enforcement stuff. The cahoots was happy to do the mental health stuff or the social um, kind of that social network stuff like the homelessness, the substance use, the resources, the connection, you know, the connection with the uh, um, things that people needed, whether that was just a shower or, you know, taken over to get their meds or something like that. And so over time, the relationship was just it's a very symbiotic relationship. And it works really well. And I think both, I mean, we feel like we're partnered together. The police feel like they're partnered with the cahoots um, people. The cahoots people feel like they're partnered with uh, the police department. And it's expanded into a lot of other, um, you know, kind of there's a, a community, our court team, which the police department has, which was the community uh, outreach resource team where a cahoots member and the police actually went out and they deal with the kind of, you know, very specific things together. So it's a little bit of everything where we realize this is really a great way to utilize roles um, and to utilize these, you know, unarmed, you know, differently trained um you know, um, people to be able to handle situations that should never have fallen into the hands of the police in the first place. And they are happy to turn them over us. So that's kind of how, you know, and now we're 24 hours a day in Eugene. 
Um, and there's two vans that run. One runs 18 hours a day, but we're going to expand to two 24-hour day vans. Um, about five years ago, um, across the river with Springfield Police, um, and they wanted to see what it would look like to be able to expand to another department. Um, and that was interesting because Springfield Police and Eugene Police have very different um, cultures within them. The communities are very different. And so it was neat to see that this model can adapt to what the community needs, what the police department needs. It wasn't a one size fits all. Um, and so that was really helpful in kind of this national um, interest when we're like, it's not a cookie cutter thing. Like we can tell you kind of what we did, how we frame it, and then your community decides what you want. And then you develop it based on that. We're not just going to drop, you know, because they're like, yeah, this is a small, you know, 150,000 people, Oregon town that was very, you know, very, um, you know, known for being pretty alternative and, you know, like that. So how is that going to work in, say, Philadelphia or San Jose? It's like, well, what do those communities want? <laughs> So it, it's, it's a really cool model. And I think it's really important, especially coming from a public safety background, that we are embedded in public safety, that we are a fourth arm of public safety. Like you can send a fireman, you can send a medic, you can send a police officer, or you can send a mental health person, not after the fact. Like, you know, it's, it's not helpful to have crisis people come in and clean up. It's helpful for them to be able to just go and do their jobs as a fourth arm of public safety. So there's so much to, to really talk about there. Um, so let's talk about the community. How how has the community responded to this type of thing from 1989 to now to 2021? Um, yeah, the community is very, very supportive. Um, in fact, especially since we kind of got thrown into the national limelight, they're super proud to be a community that has supported it because in Eugene, we are paid for through the public safety budget. So this is all approved through the community. The community, you know, is the one that is kind of driving that. Um, and they call for us. They, I think there's situations where people would hesitate to call for assistance because they don't want someone to get in trouble. They don't want, um, you know, it to escalate into something, you know, that that's bad for people. And they know that if they call for cahoots, we're going to come in with a humanistic eye. We're going to try to come up with a solution that's going to be very um, client oriented. And so the community has this resource that they, they feel really comfortable with and they're really proud of. Um, and the clients too, like, you know, we're, we're well known, you know, we, we do have a logo on our van. We wear um, uniforms per se. Um, like, so we do have, you know, we're marked so they can tell who we are. We do wear police radios. And so, you know, we're very identifiable. And just because we are coming in with a solution driven, we're voluntary. We can't make anybody do anything. You know, we're not going to, we don't have powers of arrest. We don't have powers of making you go someplace. And so that relationship is really important. Um, Obviously, if somebody's got a danger to themselves or others, that's one of the really good things about being um, in league with the partnership with the police department. We can call and have that um, that power of, of coercion um, in case somebody is you know danger to themselves or others. Like we can call in the police to come and assist them in going to the hospital with us. You know, it's not something that we can do, but we don't have to do that very often. Um, very, very small percentage of our calls that we have responded to alone have we needed to have police backup. And almost always it's a danger to self or others type situation. Yeah, that's definitely something I want to dig into. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, 
you mentioned that um, it doesn't happen very often where people, um, what's the call screening like? I mean, when people call 911 or do they call 911 and you guys just kind of handle it? How, how's that process go? Mm -hmm. So people can call the, I mean, we encourage them to call the non-emergency line if it's a non-emergency, just like all public, you know, public safety calls. Um, but they can also call 911. Like most dispatch, our um, dispatchers handle the non-emergency police stuff as well as the 911 calls that come in. So they are trained to be able to ask a few questions to determine whether there's a crime involved and whether or not there's danger to self or others. Um, so they determine those things and if, and it's regardless of whether the person calls in and says, I would like cahoots, like they can call and just ask for us directly, or if they call in and they have a cahoots appropriate situation. Um, this person is wandering into the street and they're swinging a stick and they're talking to trees. You know, I want an officer out here. Like the dispatch is able to ascertain enough about the situation to say, you know, I'm just going to send cahoots instead. This is a cahoots call. You know, just like if someone says, I want a cop, you know, a police officer out here, my neighbor's house is on fire. They're not just going to send them a police officer. They're going to be like, yeah, I'm going to send you a fireman instead. You know, I, they recognize what the most appropriate service is, even if citizens don't. I mean, if they insist on an officer, they're going to get one. Um, but a lot of times that's not the situation. So dispatch over the years has, I think the biggest thing is they have re through training and just understanding situations as they come, as they fold out. Um, there's a difference between the a perception of fear and a reality of danger. Mm -hmm. And so they have been able to kind of, you know, I'm seeing in a lot of departments who are trying to create a situation like this, there's been so much training about everything requires an officer. Like that could turn into something that could end up being, well, everything's hypothetical, you know? So what Eugene kind of learned over the years is like, okay, these are trained professionals who do, you know, have training in situational awareness. They understand, you know, a lot of the same stuff that the police do about making sure that they're keeping their distance, that, you know, we position ourselves in a way that is not going to be threatening. A lot of that same kind of training, that person-to-person that -person training that officers have. Um, and because we're coming in voluntary, we're not bringing... Um, the power of arrest and we're not bringing the power of violence with us because that's just inherent in in our police department you know that you could you could be the most um humanistic calm person-centered policeman or police officer and you still you show up with that box like you know you you can't make that go away right. um and so because it's a different situation that shows up Dispatch learned over the years that things generally don't escalate to the hypothetical. It could end up, you know, whatever. Um, and so they were able to send us to more and more things that would have originally been, no, you got to send an officer to that. That that could escalate or whatever. And so we go to, you know, situations that other departments kind of balk at because they were like, no way would we send a social worker to that call. And we're like, can totally handle it. And we'll give you all these examples of how we have handled that. Um, so dispatch has learned that it's okay to send the right responder. And that if we need help, we're going to ask just like an officer would ask for backup. Like we're going to ask, they're going to, and they come running. They're very responsive. They understand we're not armed and we're not trained and we're not going hands-on. Mm. So we know they have our backs that they're going to make our backup when we ask for it. Um, and so that's kind of how somebody would get get us through the public safety 
system is just the same way you would ask for an officer or, or fire or EMS. Well, I like that. Uh, I, I like that. And so when people see your uniforms, uh, they're not associating, as you said, the powers of arrest, the power of violence and the power of the state. They're not associating those, those types of things. And so many times we know in, in law enforcement, right, there's this, uh, you know, the suicide by cop kind of thing yeah. where, it, you know, and so obviously those types of things aren't happening where people are getting antsy. And I've seen I've seen it so many times when I was working that. You know, you see someone that you know really having a bad day, and then as soon as we show up, and as you mentioned, it doesn't it doesn't matter the demeanor. Mm -hmm. And I think I was a pretty calm guy, pretty nice, yeah. you know, you know, try to talk my hands, and, and they're just as soon as they see that uniform, they just they just go go off the rails there. So that's not happening uh, when mm -hmm. I see you all come showing up or the van no, show. Yeah, definitely, because I mean, there's that power of association. Like, you know, that, that people are just, you know, it's inherent, it's unconscious that they have a response. It's just like when you see lights light up behind your car, like you have a visceral response to the situation. Like you don't, you can't control that. And whoever's behind you, they have nothing to do with it. Like they, it could be the best, worst, whatever, but you're having a response to it. And so people do um, have a different response to a different responder who shows up. You know, kind of like the difference between when a medic shows up versus a police officer or a fire. You know, it's always that thing like, oh, people left firemen and they, you know, it, it's just it's it's the role. Like, unfortunately, police have to play this dual role or, you know, of enforcement and running into a violent scene. Like you have to be trained to be able to be somebody who can do that. And that's a that's an aversion to it. It's a human aversion to run towards danger. And so to train somebody in that, like a soldier or a police officer, that training is very, very deep, you know, and you can't just take that off. And so officers have to be trained in that role if we expect them to play that role in those, you know, one or two percent of situations that are going to require state violence. But the other 99 percent of the things that they have to respond to you know, it's people are looking at them as, oh, you're trained to do this violence role. You're bringing your violence role into, you know, you're bringing your gun to a talk. Mm. You have no choice. You know, it's that dual role. So really putting, you know, a, a professional role like cahoots into that situation, like you have an alternative to that. And police are able to handle the things that they should be trained to do and are should be focused on. You know? So the hypothetical, you know, these things could go wrong. Um, can you talk about just a little bit about that? And has anyone uh, been attacked or or any of those types of things? Mm -hmm. Cahoots, cahoots. Yeah, Are you guys officers or workers? What do you guys just how do you refer um, to Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we, we have lots of different names. Like, you okay. know, people call it cahootians. Um, we had one particularly delightful client who called us cahooters. <laughs> okay. Um, so, however, um, so really, we just, um, yeah, we just cahoots, you know, cahoots okay. workers, you know, a okay. lot of times it's what we're just responded to or uh, responded as. Um, so, I believe, so Eugene, after some, you know, there was some debate about our numbers when we first started kind of hitting the national stage. And so they ran some analysis on calls over the years. And it's hard. It's like comparing apples and oranges. Like, you know, if a call comes in as a check welfare or an intoxicated subject or, you know, there's a lot of hypothetical about whether or not that was a crime or there was not a crime involved or, you know, it could have done whatever. So whether it was a police diversion or a jail diversion, 
Yeah. You know, we can we can argue it is or isn't, you know, until the cows come home because we don't know what it would have been like if we didn't show up um, or if an officer showed up instead. You can't determine that. Um, so out of all of I believe we took 25 percent of the calls that came into the police department went to cahoots alone. Like they just sent us. That's a huge number. Um, it is a huge number. Um, they did. And I mean, I agree with um, their their assertion that a percentage of those calls were only handled by us because we were available. We were there. Like they were calls that the police would have said, sorry, we can't handle. You know, that's not us. It would never have been a call. So there is a percentage of those that that we went, but 25% of those calls that we went on alone and only 3%, less than 3% did we need to request backup from the police. And again, a lot of that is danger to self or others. If we go out on a, a, sub, a person that is acutely psychotic, you know, very manic, they need to go to the hospital. Like they're going to hurt themselves. They're going to hurt. They're, they're obviously needing psychological um, assistance. We can't make them go. A lot of times we could convince them to go and we just go like, you know, that's, I mean, that's our job is to convince, is to explain things to people in a way that they feel they are empowered. And so most people come with us, but there are some that are just so acutely psychotic or suicidal and won't contract for safety. And we're not just going to leave them. And so we'll request officers to come. They do their own assessment. They, I mean, granted, they listen to the information that we give them as mental health professionals, but then they also do their assessment. And so in Oregon, only a medical director or, or a medical, uh, like a doctor or a police officer can put somebody on an involuntary hold. And so we would call the officers out to basically put somebody on an involuntary hold so that they can force them to go to the hospital. Um, we've never had anyone killed on cahoots in the you know 30 some odd years that we've done it and we've had very few like physical assaults and most of those are because we got too close like we we didn't we weren't careful with our situational awareness we very very infrequent there's such a respect i think for what we're providing to people that clients understand we're here for you you know we are totally just yours you know we're here to come up with whatever solution we can and because of that reputation you know, people, they don't want to hurt us. You know, unfortunately, I think there's a lot, you know, of, of fighting back against um, circumstances, fighting back against things that they're you're helpless for. They have a tendency to want to fight the state and police represent the state. We don't. So they don't want to hurt us. Yeah. So even in if someone's going through a psychotic break, they still don't associate that. Is that is that correct? I mean, so they yeah, still... they don't. We're not threatening. Yeah. You know, we were just, we are not associated with a known threat. And okay. so it's a very, very different situation. And over my lifetime, like being able to, you know, having been with the, you know, public safety, like I've gone on ride alongs, I see how people interact um, with, you know, as soon as an officer shows up. I also see it on cahoots, like if there's an officer there or an officer shows up, like there's a difference in, threat level, like pe people's feeling of safety. And whether or not it's valid, it's irrelevant. It's there. Right. It's their perception of danger. And that situation is going to, it's going to play a role in that situation. Like when we show up, you know, there's, there's really no perception of danger. Like they know we're not going to make them do anything. Even if they know we can call the police in, we tell, we'll tell them that. Like if, you know, this is a situation where I have to call for an officer to come help me, I will, you know, but let's, let's talk about this for a bit. 
you know, right. so it's, it's a reputation and it's a relationship, even with people who have not interacted with us before. A lot of times they know about us and it's the way we present ourselves when we show up. Like we don't have a giant gun on our hip when we show up. Like it's just not there. It's huge. It's huge. <laughs> it's, it's, huge. it's huge. It's yeah. Literally it is huge. Like yeah. if you have somebody walking towards us, like that's what you're looking at right. because so many of us, and especially people who have a trauma history, yeah. they are hypersensitive to any kind of danger to their safety and right. their environment. And so it's like, you're bring, you're just automatically bringing um, a person in with all the things that make somebody feel threatened. Yeah. And yeah. You, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. No, it, it, it's a valid concern. It's a valid concern. And I, mm -hmm. like I said, having done the job, I could see demeanors change as soon as we got in the mm -hmm. scene. And I'm like, man, I, I didn't make anything better. <laughs> I, and I yeah. realized that. I, I realized yeah. I didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, it comes out of the um, the public safety budget. And mm -hmm. this is what people are talking about when they talk about defund the police, right? Take some of the money, some of the resources, and then allocate it towards programs like what you're doing. And as you mentioned, you've taken 25% uh, of the calls, which is huge. That's more officers who can do motor vehicle enforcement or can do or could be in schools helping kids yes. or can do whatever right uh so this is what people are talking about so i mean can you say a little bit more about defunding the police <laughs> so yeah i think one of the unfortunate things is the wording um it's really hard i mean nobody wants to defund the people that make them feel safe <laughs> You know, and, and I recognize too, like even having been in, you know, kind of straddling both worlds that I don't want there not to be somebody who can run into the violent things. Like I even as a, like as trained as I am, I'm like, if there's like a school shooting going on, I'm not going to go talk that person down. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, fine, get the gun away from him and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk. But there are situations where there's, you know, there's no talk involved. Um, and so I think it's unfortunate when people hear the word defund the police, it's like, we don't want them around. We want less of, um, and it's hard for, um, particularly, I want to say middle-class America, because we've been so indoctrinated on, uh, public safety means policing. Safety means policing. Like we have to separate those terms. Like, what does it really mean to have a safe community? Like there's a lot of research that, you know, kind of goes both ways that says that having more policing doesn't make communities safer. And when you look at communities of, of color and those who are marginalized, like homeless communities and things like that, they definitely don't think having police around make them safer. Um, so that debate over, you know, what does it mean to be safe and defunding I, I mean, I like the idea of reimagining. I like the idea of refunding those things that we've stripped the funding from. <laughs> Schools, mental health, substance use, um, housing resources. Like we have to refund um, the things that are shown empirically to create solutions in the future. And that's one of the issues too. It's really hard to get funding for preventative because it's hypothetical. Well, how do you know this is gonna make a difference? We don't have the statistics to show it because we're just hypothetically saying this person would have led a life of crime, <laughs> but how do you know for sure? Um, so I do think that reallocation of funding is important. Um, and I think that you know, unfortunately there's a, a finite amount of funding. You know, there's, there's a pot of money. There's not going to be more money to be able to like, we want to keep this, this pie the way it is. And we want this pie. Like that's one of the reasons why things got defunded in the first place is because they 
we've had to do more with less. And so at this point, it's like, how do we ensure that we have our public safety, our police officers doing what we want them to do, like the role that they are designed without creating a vacuum? Like we have to design these programs from the bottom up now because they got so destroyed over the last, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, and unfortunately, the only option is to reallocate some of that money. And the narrative a lot of times seems to be, well, there's going to be less officers. There's going to be less training if you do that. And I look at that and kind of go, well, why does that have to be true? Like why, you know, I know, I know budgets. I know the, you know, where money goes to certain things and stuff like that. You know, is there a way where if law enforcement wasn't feeling threatened, because I think there's so much threat attached to this, like they felt attacked because they were attacked. Like, you know, fundamentally, law enforcement has been attacked, particularly over the last year, like morally attacked. Like, it's no wonder that everyone's wanting to circle the wagons, mm. you know. And so when you have departments, like I I very much have so much respect for Eugene's police chief, Chief Skinner, because he has been able to hold kind of those two truths where it's like, we have a job to do and we're going to do our job. I'm going to I'm going to stand by my my officers because we have a tough role. And I'm not going to back out on them while we are doing a tough role during tough times. But at the same time, I serve our community. We serve our community. So let's try to create something that maybe it, it's going to be uncomfortable on both sides. He gets flack from both sides. Like he, he takes so much flack, um, but is willing to say, okay, well, let's see what we can do so that we're creating these things. And then we will need less law enforcement response in the future. But it's it's that vacuum right now that people are like, get rid of it altogether yeah. or don't get rid of anything. And I think reimagining and refunding and having a partnership where both sides are not feeling threatened by the other. That's the only way we're going to make any any kind of headway. Yeah, very good. Very well said. Very well said. Uh, how many other programs are are like this? Did you know throughout the country? I know you said there's mm -hmm. a sister city, Springfield, that's that's Im imitating it. Um, um, are there others? Yeah. So Springfield actually, it, it's cahoots. So oh, it's okay. like we are. It's the same. We're responding from the same. It's the same program, different funding. Okay. Um. So the county and then the city both blend their funding to pay for it over in Springfield. Um. So I know that Olympia, Washington created a program based on ours. Um, and the interesting story behind that is that their police chief was a rookie policeman in Eugene when Cahoots started. And he remembers being like, there is no way in heck I'm working with a bunch of hippies. You think I want hippies showing up on my calls? And then he realized over time, like, oh, like maybe this isn't such a bad idea. And so once he became police chief in Olympia, he said, I want this for my community too. I want the right response to these calls. You know, so they designed one. Denver um, has a the STAR program, which is based off of Cahoots as well. We had a lot of places that came in, did ride-alongs, talked a lot administratively about how we put everything together, talked to the Eugene Police Department about how do you, you know, how does this work with your, you know, your the partnership. Um, and so they, they created theirs based on ours. And the last I heard, we had like 300 inquiries of different jurisdictions who were wanting to design programs based on the CAHOOTS model. Like we had to develop a media team from, because all of us were like, we're just doing our jobs. Like, what do you mean there needs to be people to do consulting and, <laughs> and media and stuff like that? But we realized, oh, wow, this, you know, 
we're at the at the you know starting line of really making a difference across the country and the world. So let's be available and open about how, you know our our struggles, our successes, our partnerships. And I think that in the last or in the next year or two, we're going to see so many pilot projects start. And I think the biggest hurdle that places are finding is that funding. Like, where do we get the money for it? Well, I mean, as we mentioned, people are stripping it away from their from their public safety budgets in order to do that. I mean, that's and that's probably the biggest the biggest hurdle. Right. And again, there's that uneasiness where people are saying, whoa, 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 don't take away from the police because they're doing they need this to do that. But once you start showing the numbers that, okay, we can decrease 25% of your calls, you know, and we're not, uh, you know, housing all these people uh, in, 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 you know, whether the county jails or, or city, uh, you know, or less officers are getting involved in fights, which means less time they're calling out sick, which means less injury reports and all the, 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 the whole ripple effect of this is mm-hmm. gotta be enormous. I can imagine, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And I think it's looking at um, agencies like Cahoots as part of public safety. You're not defunding public safety. You're just funding a different division, like instead of SWAT or instead of SROs or instead of traffic enforcement, you are funding a mental health component. Mm. Very good. Uh, how many How many people have uh, been negative towards any pushback uh, about this? Um. Particularly with now, with with now, what's going on? People are saying, "Oh no, we don't want this," etc. Yeah, um, I think the biggest, like I mentioned earlier, the biggest pushback is you can't take this, you know, this agency that has this history in this one place with this one population. You know, especially, I mean, we're very white. We're very, very white in Oregon. We're very, very white in Eugene. And so when it's being held up as this narrative of helping. Um, ease some of the issues with um, oppressed and marginalized and communities of color. They're like, why is this the thing that we're using? You know, what do they know about that? And we've, we've had to do a lot of our own um, relearning and um, narrative around our own biases and our own um, entitlement and privilege that we, we didn't even recognize we had as well. And so that's been really helpful. And so really it's, and that's what we tell people, like, we're not just, you know, we're not going to drop this cookie cutter thing into your community. Like this is, you build it up from your grassroots. You already have departments and agencies and people who are doing this work. You just have to bring them together and you have to fund them. Like we're not trying to recreate ourselves like anywhere. And so a lot of that pushback, once we say, no, we just want to help you design your own thing like answer questions. And especially when we have that history behind us, we're not new. Like, so when people are like, oh, well that may work for a couple of years. We're like, no, it actually works for like 30. And so we sh- we've shown there's a longitudinal um, aspect to us that you don't have anywhere else. And so there's a lot of power in that to say that this is sustainable. It is, and it's expandable, it's flexible. Um, and I think the other pushback that we get is only when people see us as an opposition to police. Um, and we saw a lot of that last summer. Like that was, we had some tough dialogue and some tough um, energy um, between the police and cahoots during the summer of 2020. There was a lot of, are you with us? Are you against us? Where are we at? Where do we stand? Um, there was a lot of threat level on both sides and we had to negotiate that. 
Um, and I think the, the way that we negotiated that shows an example of how those kind of dialogues can be negotiated. Uh, very good. I, I, I appreciate very much what you just said um, about um, looking how to look in your own privilege. I think that mm -hmm. a lot of things that um, communities of color have always dealt with. When you talk about, you know, middle class, uh, before you talk about the middle class and, you know, policing and safety is the middle class. And that's what, mm -hmm. is, what, what is what they've been looking at. I think that these marginalized communities, whether it's black communities, it sounds like Oregon doesn't have very much of, <laughs> or, or um, you know, that that's been been something that people have had to really look at. White communities have really had to look at and say, you know, this is a problem that of our own making, and how do we attack this? And so, if you have people who are dealing with mental health crisis, uh, that can be or cannot be, well, it probably can be. Uh, the response to that can be very different. If if you if an officer is coming from a community um, where he's grown up in a white middle class, he's responding to white persons in crisis. Now he's walking to crisis uh, of people of color, uh, LGBT mm -hmm. communities, uh, and whatever. So that can be a double double negative response. Um, so I appreciate you saying the fact that you're saying that that this is a problem that we've had to look at. Um, and I hope that all communities would look at that and look at their response, not only of just responding. It's one thing to respond to people with mental health, but it's another thing to respond to people with who are suffering with mental health and are a person of color. Absolutely. Or, or they're or they're or they're white or um, or they're white female or Native American female or or or, or um, transgender or whatever. Yeah. You know, all these different things. And because now the officers prejudices and implicit bias uh, are coming in and that could could amp them up and stir them up to a different to a different level you know so I absolutely yeah. absolutely i mean intersectionality is huge yeah. um you know and one of the things that we have been able to say you know when people kind of push back against like you don't have a whole lot of communities of color you're right but we do have marginalized and oppressed community members that we like you said the lgbtq um i um the you know the different when you look at all that different intersectionality we do have we have a lot of communities there that we've worked with and have really good relationships with. So it's a matter of just saying, okay, we are meeting people where they're at and, and I'm not going to understand how other people's intersectionality is, is um, coloring their reality towards the situation. Just like, uh, you know, there's people who aren't going to understand where I'm coming from because we all have that intersectionality that's playing a role in our perception. And it's just really a matter of how do we appreciate and hold up the, this idea that people's perception and their lived experience, even if it's different than ours, is valid. Like, just because I haven't experienced this, I don't get to say it's not true. I don't get to say it's not real. <laughs> and I think that's the thing where people are like, well, I've never seen that. I've never, I've never done that. And it's like, okay, great. That, you're just one person out of however many. And if people are coming to me, particularly people of color, coming and telling me this is their experience, where am I to say it's not? I'm going to act as if, and I'm going to help them fight that battle if they want me to. Or I'm, we're going to raise up, like we have a lot of um, we have beautiful, Ebony um, Morgan is a wonderful biracial CAHOOTS member who has really brought us up to this level of experience. Like, let me tell you how this, how, she, is, she has done so much emotional labor mm -hmm. to help her colleagues understand things we did not under we didn't even know we didn't understand like she's she is amazing and so we're blessed with that 
Um, and we, and I think that now when we go into situations, we don't automatically assume that we're connected. Like, you know, that we're all on the same level. Like we're understanding things about ourselves that we can bring ourselves down and go, you please, you tell me what your experiences is. You are the owner of your own experience. How can I help you? What is going to be helpful for you? Not what I, it doesn't matter what I think. It's incredibly important to have these different uh, voices uh, within uh, administrations and within just the organ, you know, this, the uh, first line uh, responders, et cetera, because uh, they can give you that perspective and to think that, and, and it's one thing to think that you can walk into a situation and think, oh, everybody loves the police and everybody's this and everybody, everybody's that. And we're all one. And that, and that, mm -hmm. that's great for, for a textbook. That's great for a slogan, but it's absolutely yes. not the truth. It's absolutely <laughs> it is not. It's not mm -hmm. the truth. So, and I appreciate that that you all have been open to that. That that really says a lot, and that mm -hmm. that's part of the healing process and part of the process that gets us to that next level where we need to be. So, yeah, and it was really difficult. Like it was, oh. it was painful. Like yeah. it, we had, we had to do a lot of internal changes, and there was a lot of um, pushback. And it was interesting to see it and go, "Wow, we're we're having the same struggles." that communities are having and people are having. And, you know, we thought we were above that. We thought yeah. we were so woke. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. weren't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I believe you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really, really appreciate you coming on the, the, the podcast. Thank you so much for dealing with my, my, with my uh, technical difficulties. And no my, worries my, at my all. Other my other stuff there. You've been very, very, um, very helpful. So if communities, uh, departments uh, want to get in touch with Cahoots to, uh, to see what they can do about emulating the program or, or ride-alongs or whatever you got going on, uh, how would they contact, contact you? Yeah, so they can contact us straight through Whitebird Clinic. Um, we have a website and there's a form on there for getting in touch with Cahoots. We're not currently doing ride-alongs just because of the pandemic and we're still dealing with that. Um, but if they want information or, you know, want to talk to consulting or they just, you know, want further, you know, media support or ways that we can we can help with just our experience, you know, just get in touch with, 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 with Whitebird. Very good. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. I really, really Absolutely. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it, too. Um, all right. I'm going to stop it right there. Don't hang up. Um, if your husband wants to come on and talk about some war stories, I'd love to I'd love to have him sometime. Uh, I know he's probably going to enjoy his retirement. And Is he going back to Eugene with you? Or is, or is he, he is. Oh, yeah, okay. we're both. So, yeah, I got a job at the Roseburg VA. Okay. Um, and so he's kind of in this transitional period where, you know, at first he's like, I'm going to get a department, you know, a job on another department. I'm going to do this, that, and whatever. And, you know, all of us, all his loved ones were, maybe you should just, you did your time. Like, and it's a different world. Like it's a different world than when you started. And he's, he's, he is a good man and a good officer. And it's been very, very painful for him. I mean, between he and I, like we, that struggle between you know, the defunding the, the cahoots and the, the police, like our relationship felt that like it was really last summer was tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, he's always been a firearms instructor and he's done that stuff. And we're like eight years in the Marines, combat Marine. And I'm like, why don't you just go do firearm stuff? Like go teach. Yeah. You go are teach, retired. Open up a business. Yeah, yeah. And I'm working like you don't need to go keep doing the street thing. <laughs> So, but yeah, I'll definitely extend the, extend the invitation. He's, he's got a lot of, of good things to say about, you know, kind of how it's transitioned over the years and being with a, a department that has had its struggles. Arizona? I mean, Arizona. Yeah, Phoenix, Phoenix. Phoenix police. Yeah. 
So was that that was the department where they where they tackled that that family? Is that is that the part? You know what I'm yeah, talking about? Right? Oh yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, and that was what was really interesting is and and for me particularly is you know I'm watching this video and I'm coming at it from you know obviously I I you know I was a police dispatcher for eight years and I was with Fire EMS like I have been in the public safety world. It's not like I am not one of those crazy hippies on the other side who think that you know whatever. Um, and so I'm watching this and. The emotional dysregulation that was apparent in that video, the, when they call it the, the dollar store video, the Barbie the dollar, video. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, and it was like, <laughs> no one, you're not in control of anything right. when you're in that emotional dysregulated state. Like, okay, all every, anything else aside, like that was never okay, like to be that emotionally dysregulated for whatever reason. And I still had people within the police department and other things who were like, no, it was fine. Yeah. They're just being vilified. I'm like, I'm, are we watching the same video? Yeah. Like, and I don't know, I don't know that you can, I don't know that that can be fixed. Somebody who's that emotionally dysregulated. Um, and so I, the chief really, you know, she came out and, you know, was not popular. Because she, you know, they, she, she came down. She said, "We're going to have this investigated. We're going to have this looked at." And they got fired. He got fired. He, you can't do the job anymore if you can't stay regulated. Mm. And so it was, but yeah. So Phoenix is notoriously cowboy. <laughs> um, I'll just say that. And I think it could. I mean, the reason, and they actually looked back in 2019 about starting um, a relationship with a mental health organization here to start a cahoots model. They can't get back past dispatches. You just, I'm sorry, but I need to send an officer to everything. And they're like, you, you can send these mental health people to these. Well, they're not going to be able to handle it. And, and I'm just kind of going, yeah. And I can give you a bunch of examples of how we did handle it. People swinging sticks, kids swing sticks in parks. Like, you know, it's like, it's not. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Phoenix has a long way to go to, to be able to be open to well, changes and they're, you know, have a huge communities of color and they don't call the police. There's places here, you know, when I talk to people about, you know, the idea of public safety, I said, there are communities in Phoenix, they have their own safety because they don't call the police Yeah. and the police don't go in there. So how are they, I mean, they're not exploding. <laughs> they're not killing each other like Lord of the Flies. So obviously there is a system in place that's different than our idea of public safety, and it works. Well, that's that's interesting. I'd like I'm in, I don't know if you're in contact with any of those people, but I'd certainly love to talk to them uh, to see uh, who doesn't call the police and, and, and all that kind of. And as long as the community is good, I mean, I don't want to talk to any cities that's blowing up or whatever. But. Yeah, no, I mean, these are they're they're calm. You know, they're they're definitely places that you know. I mean, I would not have access because I'm. It's yeah, I'm. They wouldn't talk to me, and I don't blame them. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. When you look, you know, if you were to get a hold of um, some of the, you know, the agencies in Phoenix that that work with, you know, Margo, the communities of color, they would be able to really help you. I mean, yeah, there's just like I can think of blocks, like areas where no, nope, nobody goes in, and they don't come out and ask for help, and they function just like you know. Mm -hmm. Upper class Scottsdale, except for they don't call the police for their neighbors and loud music. <laughs> well, I mean, 
yeah, that that's that's certainly an interesting model. That's something that that is some, something I like to explore because I know that there's a lot of communities even even here in Connecticut where, I mean, the the police are the servants. I mean, they they call the police if they, I don't know, if they have a their son got a traffic ticket or something like that. You know, that they, they don't call the police. You know, um, mm -hmm. you know, if they find drugs in schools or whatever, you know, it's not an option to call the police. Mm -hmm. But of course, in the inner city schools, it's it's mandatory. You know, so yeah, it's really different. And I know that one of the models that I've always been interested in is you know, like up in Alaska, when they have they have the village police officers, they're community members, and they have all agreed that they're unarmed. It's relationship. And I think that that, you know, that says a lot. It's kind of like how Cahoots has a relationship, you know? So it's like, there's places that do not have armed responders. And so, and, and they're not just chaos, <laughs> you know, you never hear about them because there's nothing going on. They handle things yeah. internally and they have the relationships to handle things internally. I think that's one of our biggest issues is that, you know, we're transient communities and we don't really know each other anymore and we're afraid of each other, you know, and that's a particularly white middle class thing. Like I can't go talk to my neighbors. Why, why can't you just go over there and say, Hey dude, like your dog barked all night. Well, I'm not going to go do that. I want the police to do it for me. Yeah. Yeah. How nice would it be to just say, no, you need to go talk to your neighbor. <laughs> we're not going to send anyone out there you need to adult and go talk to your neighbor <laughs> i think that we've become I, I agree with you 100 percent with that and i'll, I'll let you go into this uh no the, the, there there's there's a fear of of litigation and i remember when i was a dispatcher mm -hmm. you know, for our for our pd like i would talk to my sergeant like why do i gotta send a cop to this oh and yeah he's like and he had the same mentality that that i'm sure the arizona and many other uh i keep saying arizona that the phoenix, that the phoenix yeah, uh, officer <laughs> that the phoenix uh, department had is like you know what if something happens and that yeah. that became my mindset especially when i became a, sar a sergeant lieutenant i'm like what yeah. if something happened Right. So you become you become so scared of litigation that you, you, you know, you're scared to, to do whatever. And after a while, when I when I was the radio room supervisor, uh, I was like, listen, we're not sending a cop to that. I, I'll just I'll just deal with it. People would call us. I'm sure they did with you all mm -hmm. uh, calling about, you know, it's it's six thirty in the morning. I can't wake my son up for to go to school. I am not sending the police officer to say, <laughs> you know, but but other yeah. we, but that takes a certain level of bravery to say you know we're, we're gonna you know do something a little different here than sending armed police officers because you can't control your kid or to whatever call that it is and i agree with you yeah. that i agree 100 percent with this program that you know police officers are have taken on too much uh and, and we we just can't sustain this and it, it it's so detrimental to community relations and all that so yeah definitely and that call with like the the child i mean that's what cahoots are going okay yeah. we obviously have a family dispute we've got an issue that we need to like mediate Right. So we would go. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we dealt with a lot and we dealt with, you know, a lot of, you know, children, teens, older. And it wasn't just, we don't do, a lot of times people think, look at us as the homeless department. <laughs> you know, we're dealing with that kind of call. But we do, I mean, we, I've done everything from, you know, sitting and doing counseling to, you know, somebody who's, you know, completely, you know, has been a chronic alcoholic and is like, you know, destitute and homeless in the street to, a high-end home in the South Hills because, you know, somebody we would see as a, a, you know, white person of privilege is having an emotional breakdown. Like mental health knows no, no color, no socioeconomics, no, like people need help 
they need support. So many people need support. And so a program like ours is like, we can do, we can run the gamut of, of being able to just provide some of that social safety net. Mm. Very good. Thank you so much for, for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. Good luck going back in Oregon. Good luck Thank you. To your uh, husband, Aaron. If you'd like to come on, I'd, I'd love to have him. Love to talk sure. to him. So sure. um, I hope he's much success in his next career, whatever he decides that's going to be. So. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to tell him he's just going to chop wood and go fishing. And, Listen, and that's, that's what it's farmer. about. That's, I know, right? Like, you earned it. Like, go relax. Listen, 20, 20 years is not easy to come by, you know? And why... I, I do understand the love for it, but it's a different world now. And people always tell me, like I, I got out right before the, the shit hit the fan. Mm -hmm. And people always tell me all the time, listen, you got it at the right time. Yeah. But even I miss it. I really do miss it. I've actually put in for some Chiefs jobs. I don't think I'm gonna get them, but but I actually miss it. I mean, I just I just miss you know being in, in the mix there. But I, I don't yeah. want to go back on the street. I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm trying to help him kind of see that he has an identity beyond patrol because he was in patrol the entire 21 years. And I said, you can keep serving your community you can continue to even play that hero role which i know is very ingrained <laughs> you can do it without pinning on the badge and going back in a patrol car yeah there's there's life out there other than that so i'm trying to kind of merge him into like you're a family man now just be family with us for a while <laughs> that's that's a, that's a tough that's that really is a tough sell and i actually mm -hmm. I lost, I had a psychologist I was going to talk about because he, he dealt with that cops who retired and didn't have an identity after they retired. Um, so I, I got to find this guy's uh, uh, email address. Um, you know who else you can talk to? Ellen Kirschman. She wrote, okay. I love a cop. She's a okay. psychologist. She's a police psychologist. Okay. She's a phenomenal woman. And okay. she also deals with like across the lifespan type thing and the issue of, um, what training and the job does to identity and yeah. how it affects family relationships um, and how to like, yeah, negotiating that. Even me trying to negotiate it with my husband, having the background I do where I like, I understand why you're doing what you're doing, but you have to stop it because it's detrimental to our marriage. Mm. <laughs> you just have to stop. <laughs> like it, it's, it, I'm it? not love a threat a, what to is, you. Love a cop, what is it? <laughs> I love a cop. I love a cop. Okay. Yeah. Oh, gonna, she's if, phenomenal. Ellen I don't know if you have her if you have her contact, but if I you do. tell her. Oh, if you could just email her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, she she talks a lot about and she's actually done some she does um like post trauma retreats for first responders on the West Coast. Okay. And she um has also done she writes for psychology today and has done a lot of pieces on exactly what you're talking about. Like that role, this whole role confusion that's happening. Yeah. Like I'm a hero. Why does everyone hate me? Yeah. Like, like yeah. what do you do with that? When all of a sudden, I mean, police officers fell from that pedestal super quick. Cause it was like pandemic, like, Oh, you guys are, you know, heroes, heroes, heroes. And all of a sudden we hate you. Yeah. Like, woo, what? <laughs> that escalated quickly. <laughs> uh, you know, I was, I'm sure your husband was, was around probably for, for uh, 9-11. And we yeah. saw, you know, everybody loved us. Everybody loved us. You know, yeah. I, I I couldn't go to a restaurant without people be people begging to buy me, you know, something yeah. to eat. And now and then, and then a few years after that, there was, you know, a few scandals here and there. And then next thing you know, we were trash again. And now, you know, yeah, pandemic here. Now we're back down here. So it's, it's an ebb and flow, but. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that I watched him go through, which was really interesting is we had a shooting here in his squad area and. <sighs> 
if there would have been a little bit of additional time spent <laughs> before actual discharge, I think that the outcome would have been very different after watching it. Um, I think that sometimes the threat level and the train, the zero risk, high threat makes a response different than it would be um, if you took a little bit more time and you had maybe even a, a calmer disposition and a higher um, a higher tolerance for risk. Like some officers have a higher tolerance for risk than some. Like they're just some are you know high strung. <laughs> and so we watched this thing, and you know it was a poor, it was unfortunately a situation that. Uh, they thought it was a DV or may not have been a DV or whatever. And so, of course, the guy comes to the, the apartment door and the officers are like, hey, what's going on? You know, and they notice that he has, you know, I mean, here, everyone's armed. <laughs> and so he's a gun in his waistband, right? And so the officers, like, get down. And, I mean, the way hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? You can tell the guy's going to go down, but obviously the officer felt he was not whatever. So he, anyway, he, he ended up um, being, you know, it was considered a good shoot. Wait, wait, wait. that was the one. That was the one in a hotel. Is that? Is that? that it was one? an apartment. Yeah, it was an apartment, and okay. yeah, they were just playing video games. He was playing video games with his wife, and that's what happened. And the officer should whatever. But my husband, afterwards, he came home a couple of days later, and he's like, "I go to calls now, and especially if it's a, a family situation, and people are like, don't shoot, just don't shoot us, don't shoot him, don't shoot him,' and it's like immediately, and he's just like." And I'm like, I get it. Like, I, I mean, I get it. And But that's got to be so hard for you that you're automatically considered, like you're automatically a predator when you show up. And yeah. he had a hard time with that. He was just, I'm like, well, what do you expect people to... <sighs> it sucks. I wouldn't do your job. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's just hard. And so I'm glad he's off the street. I'm glad that, you know, we can start some healing. Because, yeah, there's, there's wounds. There's a lot of wounds from 21 years of of seeing what he's seen and ex experiencing what he's seen. And, um, you know, I just really encourage him to, to get the help he needs and really just, it's okay. It's okay to be a little wounded. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I hope so too. I'm sure yeah. he will be. It sounds like he's got a good wife who's really supportive. <laughs> and, and what, no, seriously, seriously, yeah. we understand that because some people would be just like, oh, just suck it up or knock it off or whatever. But, <laughs> but to be empathetic, to understand, I mean, I'm sure it's your training and you just understand yeah. uh what it, what it's what it's like you know so and yeah definitely so it's that's important it really is important it takes a lot of detox and i i re, i retired in 2019 i'm still withdrawn i'm still yeah. you know i trying not to always have to have my back to the to the to, to, yeah. or to uh or, or driving differently you know i'm like I, I never let anyone else drive but now i let my daughter drive and just 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 trying oh, yeah. to really really back off from this this hyper vigilant mindset it's it's it's, yeah. it's tough it's tough yeah definitely i mean i think our our biggest issue and i think that a lot of couples um police couples deal with is that you know officers are trained that any kind of um disagreement any kind of uh, assertive otherness is a threat yeah and so i have to tell them i said look i'm not a threat just because i don't agree like our differences are not a threat like, and so when you automatically, I can see you 
like tensing up and hey, you want to come up with a solution. Like you don't have all the info yet, but I get it. Officers have to come up with quick solutions without asking for all the info. Cause I laughed at it. I said, how weird would it be if you were like social work mode and you get to a call and, and the person's telling the story and you're like, so tell me what the history of that thing is going to be for you. And it's like, it's not happening. You've got to come up with a solution quickly with what you know. I said, doesn't work in our relationship. So stop. <laughs> and I am not a threat. I am not your enemy. You know, even if I'm disagreeing with you, I'm not, I'm not going to attack you all of a sudden. I guarantee it. If I haven't yet, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's yeah. good. That's good. All right. Well, I'll all let right. you go. All Thank right. I'm so going to go back to packing. Okay. Enjoy. Take <laughs> all care. All right. Have a good day. All right. You too. Thanks. If you can remember that, those people's I will. I will send it right away. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. Bye. Right. Police reform is more than just a trending topic. My name is Lawrence Hunter. I'm a retired police captain from the state of Connecticut, and I've written a new book called Police Reform. And I talk about the evolution of law enforcement here in America and what changes need to be made in order to improve the relationship between the police and the communities that they serve. Over the past few months, it has become increasingly more important and more evident that there's something amiss and awry between the police and the communities that they serve. So whether you're about defunding the police or defending the police, if you're about Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, no matter what side of the fence you happen to sit on, make sure that you pick up your copy of Police Reform today.